You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 152. What's up, Mark? Uh, I say this in every episode, so I'm not going to talk about how busy we are. Obviously, we skipped a couple episodes. Big apologies to our existing audience. We're, I promise you, by the beginning of the new year, that will be solved. But Jake and I are just busy. And speaking of us being busy, Jake, where are we going in a couple of weeks, the end of September? We will be interviewing and recording podcasts live at Weatherford's booth at the SBE ATCE, September 24th, 26th in Dallas, Texas. So if you guys don't have your tickets... I think we're going to have a link in the show notes. You can check that out. It should be a good time. We're going to have some great conversations with some really innovative companies doing some really great things. Yeah. So uh, if you're not going to SPE, STC, ATCE, Annual Technical Conference Expo, it's on my must-attend list. What I love about this show is it's not a bunch of sales and marketing people. It's a bunch of business people from oil and gas looking for solutions to problems they deal with. I love this show. You know, thank, Big shout out to Weatherford for inviting us to come to their booth. We'll be there for two days. We're bringing a couple podcasts. And we're giving away some free passes, so you have no excuse. Come to the show, come say hi to us, and come you know, enjoy yourself in Dallas. And then I have six seats at my personal table. So if you don't know this, as a company, Oil & Gas Global Network, and as a podcast family, we're supporting a Red M, which is a charity that's fighting human sex trafficking. We've bought a several tables. I have my personal table. So if you want to join me and have me introduce you into my Oil & Gas Network in a very personal way, I'd love to have you come. It's $140 for seats, so it's not much money. 100% of that money goes to a good cause. We'll put a link in the show notes. Just reach out to me directly. I'd be happy to uh, talk through the details of that. And then, Jake, we're growing. We have new shows coming. We have a new podcast host coming on board. Uh, we're doing some really cool stuff. So if you're a social media marketing person... We're looking for you. So if you listen to the show, we're looking for somebody to come volunteer to help us with our social media marketing. If you're that person or if you know that person, once again, reach out to me. I'd love to jump on a phone call and talk through what we're looking for. You know, We're ready to add somebody that's dedicated just to handle our social media. Okay, with all that said, it's uh, let's get into the reviews real quick. We've got two quick reviews. This is the number one way to support the show. Spend a minute and a half, leave us a review on iTunes. First one, Informative by Ron L99. I find the show very informative. It gives me a chance to catch up on current affairs and industry easily. It causes me to think about the topics and either agree or disagree with the commentary. The show is usually pretty accurate technically, which is what will help to attract and retain listeners. Keep up the good work. Thank you. <laughs> and then great content by Datha A0603. Love the podcast. Great info for young engineer professionals working in the Permian Basin oil and gas industry. Simplify. Simplify, brother. Okay, Jake, let's get to the questions. We got some good ones. All right. So first question is from Nick, who's a design engineer at some anonymous company. He writes, the most recent podcast episode, week of July 22nd, had mentioned getting involved with student organizations. Although not an undergrad student, this was a great idea. However, I've noticed the lack of knowledge, resources, and recognition of the midstream and downstream industries within oil and natural gas. I used to work upstream prior to the downturn in 2014-2015, but have since moved downstream. I'm positive I'm not alone in having to leave the upstream space during the downturn. Various other colleagues and classmates have left upstream and continue to work in the midstream downstream space. And I realize much of your information and side businesses are dedicated to the upstream space. However, I feel there's a great opportunity to involve the other areas of oil and gas. 
Personally, I'd love to see more coverage and talk about the midstream and downstream spaces, and I'm sure hundreds of thousands of other individuals who've been pushed out of the upstream uh, world would agree. On a side note, one of my long-term goals throughout my career is to bring more funding and awareness to college programs for midstream and downstream oil and gas industries. With this being said, is there a is there anything I can do to assist? Please don't hesitate to reach out. Keep up the great work, Nick. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So we try to cover the entire industry on this show. It's you know about seventy percent of the spend in the oil and gas industry. When you look at the entire vertical, is in upstream. So if you look at it from a financial point of view, then it would kind of make sense that this show covers about seventy percent upstream. But we we Nick, we definitely try to cover it midstream and downstream. And you know what you did, Nick? You did something that nobody ever thinks about doing. When there's a downturn in one part of the industry, you move to another part, which was genius. It's actually one of the things I find strange about our industry is that if you're born in the pipeline business, you're born in midstream, you think that's the whole industry, <laughs> you know. If you got your start in the service companies, you think that's the whole industry, and it's not. So, you know, we try to cover everything. And thanks for offering to help. I tell you what, I don't, I haven't looked. I don't know if Nick's in Houston or not. Oh, we can't because we don't have his last name. So, Nick, if you're in Houston, reach out to me. We actually need some help with our happy hours we do every month. I mean, I also wouldn't mind just kind of chatting with you because somewhere down the road, we're going to have an oil and gas careers podcast, and your story might be valuable there where you can let your peers and oil and gas know that just because something's one part of the industry is hurting, don't give up on the industry. There's other parts that are hiring like crazy. So I'm, I'm glad you went this route, Nick. A lot of people, a lot of our you know, peers in oil and gas don't ever think about moving to different parts of this industry. So good job. Yeah, we try to cover as much news as we can across the entire industry. But the fact of the matter is there's significantly more news in upstream. And there's just not as many articles coming out about midstream and downstream. But those that are out there, we try to cover. Moving on to the next question from Josh Snoke. He's a company man at Snoke Energy Consulting. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Colorado's Initiative 97? Do you think the industry as a whole could absorb all the lost jobs? This extreme setback change would occur. Thanks, and create show. So just to kind of, I guess, preface this before we, we get into it, we want to talk a little bit about what the Colorado's initiative 97 is. Do you want me to take that or you want to mark? No, go ahead. Take it. Run with it. So it is a, I guess it's a new bill that Colorado is trying to pass that would bar the extraction of more than 80% of non-federal land uh, there in Colorado. And so we're seeing that, or, or I guess the, the estimates are saying that it would it would affect probably about 100,000 local jobs. And to be honest, I think it would be absolutely detrimental to the oil and gas industry, especially locally there in Colorado. I, I don't know where those jobs would move to. You know, I, I don't understand the logic behind this. I know that they were trying to say something about fracking and families and something like that. But um, yeah, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I can tell you exactly what's going on here. So the anti-oil and gas people are smart. You have to give them credit for that. They're the first ones to have learned to effectively use social media to influence public opinion. And that then affects our lawmakers. And they, when they can't get their way in one direction, they're quick to change tactics. For instance, all the late, latest anti-oil and gas stuff around pipelines. What the anti-oil and gas people have realized is that, well, if they can't shut down the drilling, if they can shut down the pipeline, you can't move those hydrocarbons. So even though the way they're thinking about it is, is not correct. Uh, they're very smart at what they're doing. So what they did here, Initiative 97, is it would basically change the distance that a well has to be from homes and schools, right? So right now, you have a well, you have a production facility, I should say, up to 500 feet next, 500 feet away from a house and 1,000 feet for schools, right? They want to change that to 2,500. Well, if you look at the map of Colorado, look at where they're drilling. If now all of a sudden you have to move your well from 500 feet to 2,500 feet, there's no place left to drill. And so this is a 
a misguided but very good tactic by the anti-oil and gas folks to, to try to shut down you know, hydrocarbon extraction and processing in Colorado. What do I think about this? What I think about this is the people that are supporting this are also supporting putting their neighbors in the unemployment line, which is just wrong. A lot of money, a lot of jobs, a lot of prosperity in Colorado comes from oil and gas. We do it responsibly and safely. And yes, I know there are accidents. But what you don't hear people talk about is there, there's other accidents uh, in every vertical. And we're really good at not only fixing the accidents, we're really good at mitigating the risk and then cleaning up whatever happened so that it has zero impact to the environment. And we take care of our people. So you know, this thing just kind of aggravates the bejeebies out of me. If it, gets, if it goes through, people could lose their jobs. Some of those people would be willing to move to other places like Texas where they could pick those jobs right back up and probably make way more money. But some people won't. And so, you know, it, it, th- you don't think about this as shutting down oil and gas. Think about this as, as hurting your neighbors because that's exactly what this is. So we'll keep an eye on this. I just, this just really, really aggravates the bejeebies out of me. But it's, it's where the, the voters in Colorado are. Yep. I agree. All right. Next question is from Jake Jensen. He's the VP over at Coastal Pipe of Louisiana. He writes, I'm a new listener, four episodes in, and I'm pretty much hooked. You and Jake do a great job of giving the actual insights, but still from a 10,000 foot perspective on a broad range of topics. I haven't been able to find this anywhere else. I'm an OT or OCTG distributor. So my question is about tariffs and their impact as the notable headwind of global growth, aka global oil demand. Can you dive deeper into why these tariffs will or why these tariffs won't affect the price of oil in the next six to 12 months or X amount of time period? So I talked about these tariffs on our predictions for last year. I figured this was happening. So the first thing is, quite basically, when you look at tubular goods, think of all the drill stem, all the tubing, all the pipe that our industry uses. You're now slapping a 25% price increase on that, right, which is going to hurt everybody. Now, I have a little bit different viewpoint on this than a lot of my peers. So for the short term, it is absolutely going to hurt our industry. It's going to add cost to uh, drilling's going to add cost to operations. It's going to add, add cost to transportation, to processing, to distribution. And so that's going to hurt our industry. But there's another part of this that's kind of a bigger story. And, and this is where I disagree with some of my peers is that if, if we add this import tax, and this is nothing different than what the U.S. did as far as importing vehicles, what happened is a while back, the U.S. decided to add a tariff, an import tax to imported cars. And so what that, what did, Nissan and you know Mercedes and BMW do to counteract that? They lowered the cost of their cars? No. They came to the U.S. and they built factories. In fact, the one vehicle built in the U.S. that has the most American parts and most American constructions is a Toyota Camry. That's the most American vehicle you can buy today is a Toyota Camry. So they by adding the tariff, they caused the overseas automobile manufacturer to have an increase in cost, and it was just cheaper for them to come build their factories here, which then just benefits the U.S. and the people in the U.S. I think, Jake, that the same thing's going to happen here with this uh, tubular good tariff. I think it's going to revigorate not only the U.S. piping business, which all that pipe now comes from overseas, but also our steel manufacturing. You know, the U.S. was known forever to make the most high-quality steel on the planet. And then what happened is the Chinese got involved in manufacturing steel. They flooded the market, drove prices to the point that they put the American manufacturers out of business, and their quality is not always what they say it is. So as an industry that's always worried about leaks and you know keeping things contained and well controlled and everything i think long term wise this will help bring back 
American steel manufacturing and some of the special tubing manufacturing that's now overseas. So long term wise, I think this would help the American steel industry. And once they start getting ramped up, they will be able to lower cost because they don't have to pay this import tariff. And then all of a sudden, we would the oil and gas industry would be back to paying what they've been paying for tubular goods. But short-term wise, it is absolutely going to hurt our industry. The other thing is that people don't think about here is regardless of what side you are politically, the entire American population will get upset when they have to pay more at the pump, regardless of what political side you're on. Well, this tariff will be passed on and eventually it will hit the pump. And so it's going to be interesting to see what the public's appetite is to keep this thing in place when they're paying more for you know, fuel at the, at the pump. So once again, we'll keep an eye on this one too. This one's actually a much bigger deal than a lot of people think it is if you think about long-term wise. So not always a big fan of our current administration, what they do in social media. I like this. And I know a lot of my oil and gas peers are going to say blasphemy. How can you like this 25% uh, tariff on it? I think long-term wise it can help our industry and help our country. So let me possibly challenge that and kind of just give my input. Obviously, you know, with our operating company, we have to purchase steel and now it's a lot more expensive. And so it, for, especially for, you know, a smaller operator, it dramatically changes the economics of, uh, you know, of your, of your wells, right. To kind of go back to, obviously, you know, both of us are huge car guys. We like to use the car analogies going back to like the Nissan and the Toyota and then bringing factories over here. I think it's a little different with consumer goods because you have so many other options of what you can, I mean, you can go out and buy a Chevy and you can go out and buy a Ford. You don't necessarily have that luxury today when it comes to the certain grade and quality of steel. I mean, it's pretty much owned by the whole market's owned by like these Chinese steel manufacturers. So I don't know. And the demand is obviously more than it's ever been. So I'm not sure if I'm not sure if that's ever going to put a squeeze on these Chinese manufacturers or I mean, I think it's an opportunity for American entrepreneurs to step up and innovate. Somebody who wants to tackle that challenge, but I'm not sure if it'll put a squeeze on them to actually relocate to the States because the demand is still going to be there and operators still have to buy it. Service companies still have to buy it and we're consuming more of it now than ever. So I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious to see how it plays out to be honest with you. Yeah. And, and you're right, Jake, the fact that it's, you know, standing up a drill steel manufacturing facility is very capital intensive. It's not like you could do it for 500 bucks. And the only way you would do that is if you think long-term wise, this tariffs could stay in place. If you think there's a chance that in three years, it's going to go away, you wouldn't do that. So you're right in the fact that depending on the risk involved, it may not motivate companies to bring manufacturing here in the U.S. So we'll keep an eye on this one. Oh, and I like the fact that he brought up the Lafayette Happy Hour. I actually spoke to Jake and he's on board. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, we're doing these happy hours and we're replicating them every place there's oil in the U.S. And Lafayette, Louisiana is one of those places. So stay tuned. Cool. Next question is from, I'm just going to call him Hoff. I can't, I can't pronounce, sorry, but I can't ask you, I can't pronounce your first name. Uh, he's the host of the Hoff Profit Podcast. Why is there such a huge move against the shale boom in Europe? I seem to be the only person supporting drilling for it in the Netherlands. So this is actually a really good question because the answer is based on stuff that people don't think about. So when you think about Europe, think of the Netherlands, France, uh, there's been a bunch of countries that have outlawed hydraulic fracking. And the funny thing I think about it, Jake, is they don't know what it is, but they don't want it to happen. So they outlawed something. They don't know what it is. Lawmakers should never make a law based on lack of knowledge. That is a scary, scary place for that to be. But but several countries in Europe have done it. Bulgaria, I think it did as well as, as the Czech Republic. But the difference is the basic ownership of mineral rights. So the U.S. is the only country on the planet where people like you, the listeners, myself and Jake, if you own some property, you can own the mineral rights. And then you can take those mineral rights and 
lease them or sell them to somebody else, and then you get a percentage of the revenue from the minerals they take from your land. U.S. is the only country that does that. So in the U.S., even if you may not like oil and gas, when you see the fact that somebody's going to write you a check for X, it'll make you at least do the research. It'll motivate you to go. And then maybe if you're a smart person, you do the research and you go, well, you know what? It's actually cool to have oil well on my property. I'll make a lot of money. It's totally great for the environment. And we're helping you know supply energy to the world. In Europe, the governments own the mineral rights. So the people never take part in the profitability and the prosperity of somebody drilling on their land. So they have no motivation to explore what the truth is. And so, you know, with the current state of anti-oil and gas here and in Europe, a lot of people think that it's harmful and, it, and it's not what they think it is. And a really good example of this is there's a little project in Australia called Gorgon. And I say little, it's the largest single development in Australia's history. And back in, I think, 2009, yeah, I think it was 2009, uh, Chevron approached the Australian government and said, look, we want to build this huge LNG facility. We want it here. Um, you have the hydrocarbons and you have easy access to Asia Pacific, which we think in 20 years would be a big market for LNG. Can we do this? And the Australian government said, no, we don't want more oil and gas facilities in Australia. We don't think it's good for the environment. And so Chevron came back and go, Here's why it's good for the environment. We will build a wildlife refuge. Here are the metrics that we will work with you on to maintain. And by the way, here's a check for a gazillion dollars. And you know what the people in Australia said? Welcome aboard, Chevron. Come on, come do it. And I think if Europe would follow that same thing where the European people could financially benefit from the minerals that they're sitting on, I think the public sentiment against oil and gas would change quickly. And so, so Hoff, that, that, that's, I think, the bottom line is the culture is different based upon the difference in the way the business is done here in Europe. And I hope that helps. Cool. Next question is from Stephen Cruz. Uh, he's an account manager at Nalco Champion. He writes, hey, guys, I work in deep water oil and gas production fields, specifically in the production chemical industry. I really enjoy the podcast and it helps me keep up to date on industry highlights. Keep up the great work. On to my question. I enjoy reading with what little spare time I have and I prefer to focus on continuing my education about my specific sector of the market and the upstream business as a whole. So the best too far books that I've read so far are The Prize and ExxonMobil, A Private Empire. Do you have any suggestions on uh, other good books, specifically some suggestions on deep water upstream production uh, would be greatly appreciated? Yeah. I don't have any, I went through my, um, so I, I buy all my books through Amazon. And so I have this, uh, list of like 500 books that just keeps growing. And the significant amount of those are oil and gas books. And I went and looked through those and I didn't find one that was specific necessarily to, uh, deep water upstream production other than just accounts of what happened with the whole, uh, BP Macondo thing. Some of the books that I've got on my list that I put on recently that I do want to read is there's, these are Two of these are new and some of these are not. One is called Saudi Inc., uh, the, the Arabian Kingdom's Pursuit of Profit and Power by Ellen Wald. Another one is Energy, A Human History by Richard Rhodes. This one's not a new book, but this is one that I've been wanting to read. Uh, the First Billion is the Hardest by T. Boone Pickens. And then all of the other books on my list that have to do with oil and gas, most people wouldn't be interested in. It's just about <laughs> like old wildcatters from, from back in the day and kind of just detailed accounts of you know their, their adventures. 
So I actually have a couple, and it's so funny. So you see his question, he went specifically about deep water. So I have a book sitting on my shelf that's literally called Deep Water Petroleum. <laughs> so <laughs> it's by William Leffer. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. And then another really good one, because the subsea world is tied at the hip with the deep water drilling, right? The, the FMCs and the uh, uh, Ackers and the Camerons and the GR gases of the world. So there's another one called Subsea Engineering, a Subsea Engineering Handbook. That's a really good one, too, to understand the complexities of what goes on on the ocean floor it's it's actually incredible the stuff those uh, subsea manufacturers pull off it's like magic so that that would be two that i would i would look into another one is one called drilling technology they don't go super deep on the on the technical side so depending on steven what you do oh you're an account manager so you're not an engineer or maybe an engineer but you're out there managing accounts so that would be another one go to uh, a drilling technology that allows you to understand the process well enough that you can have a conversation with an engineer and he knows that you know what you're talking about so that would be, be my three that i would recommend right there yeah. If you're talking about like actual more like technical manuals and stuff, there's a ton of those out there. I've got probably at least two dozen on my computer uh, that kind of dive into, it depends on, it depends on if you're looking for something that's actually technical. There's one that's, there's a couple that actually that are like considered non-technical guides that give you high level overviews of the entire industry. And they dive pretty deep into the deep water side, but I wasn't sure if you were looking for something that was more, more of a story or something that was actually more technical, but yeah, either way. Those are all great suggestions. Uh, next question is from uh, Daniel, who's a service coordinator at Schlumberger. He writes, hi, Mark and team, love your show, and I've had the privilege to meet you and the team in person. I have a question. Uh, from what I've seen, efficiency is the name of the game, but I see there are many jobs in the oil and gas industry, particularly middle management jobs, uh, that exist because the model is flawed. For example, you need a coordinator or a middleman to assign resources to fulfill a purchase order. And that middleman uses an Excel spreadsheet and takes decisions uh, based on his own experience. And sometimes it's not efficient. So where do you see the next wave of efficiency arriving in the oil and gas industry? I can tell you right off the bat. I mean, if you go back and listen to just about any episode that we've talked about, a little bit of technology, we're seeing a huge wave through the digitalization of oil and gas. You know, we are definitely on the ground floor, especially with a lot of our companies and with the new podcast that we're launching uh, regarding oil and gas startups. There's a, there's, a lot of things that are happening. And, and this is what you just described has been done for like the last 20 years. And there's been a lot of software out there that has really taken the industry from zero to one. And now a lot of the startups are kind of, you know, taking the medallion and, and running from, from one to a hundred. And I think a lot of that has to do with, uh, you know, digitalization. We still have a significant amount of unstructured data that is never utilized. Well, data in general, that's not utilized just to kind of give you some, some stats off the top of my head, uh, particularly, as it pertains to upstream, uh, it's the same thing in midstream and downstream. But for today, for example, EMP employees spend about 80% of their time on data aggregation and preparation. And then 97% of all data collected by EMPs today is never used. So that is an absolute astounding quote, and it blows my mind. So from a productivity standpoint, we can give you know employees their time back to do more what we consider high-value task. But at the same time, we can extract significant amounts of insights from the data that we have. You know, we've, we've seen with a lot of the tech companies have now surpassed a lot of the oil companies as far as the most valuable companies in the world and even by based on, on revenue. Data is becoming the new oil and oil needs to understand that we need to leverage the data that we have to you know, become as efficient as possible, to extract as many uh, hydrocarbons as possible and to become as profitable as possible. Yeah, and Jake, Wellhub fits right in here, doesn't it? Your startup. Yeah, that's that's the the main thing that we are focusing on. Yeah, so Daniel, have your mergers and acquisition team reach out to Jake and talk to him about Wellhub. The other thing is, I'm seeing 
the way people think about process has changed. So Jake talked about from a technology point of view, I kind of want to address this question from a people point of view. So I'll give you a perfect example. Six years ago, Shell's checklist for drilling on land, so onshore hydraulic fracking, was 200,000 line items. 200,000 line items somebody had to go through while they, when they went to drill a well. And Shell has revamped that and removed a lot of people and a lot of the duplicate parts of that process. And that, that 200,000 line item checkbox is down to 2,000. So Shell has driven efficiencies and got rid of a lot of those middle people that quite frankly, they were there based upon tradition, but quite frankly, they slowed the decision-making process. And they also caused errors to creep, creep into the process, which actually affected HSE metrics. So I'm seeing companies, and not just upstream companies, I'm seeing the same thing going on in midstream, same thing going downstream, realizing that if they can use technology in combination with new processes, right? So how do, how do they manage the process? They can pull people out of it. And the less people that you have there, and the more the technology can double check everything, the more efficient and the safer and the faster you operate. And I know it's not moving fast enough for you, Daniel. It hasn't been moving fast enough for me for 25 years, but I'm telling you, it's changing. So we're getting there. Cool. Last question is from Dean, who's a completions consultant. He writes, gentlemen, first off, great show. It's helpful to guys like me in the field to get minimal exposure to the business side of the industry. Second, what advice would you give to someone wanting to transition from a field position to falling down the same path as Jake? Thanks again. Keep the great work and simplify. I wish you'd be a little bit more specific. I'm not sure if you're referring to, you know, our work with WellHub or if you're referring to, you know, our work as an operator with Rose Natural Resources. Man, that's what that's so well, since he that's said so big, he, I don't, wanted to train I'm not really even sure how to tackle this question. <laughs> yeah, since he said he wanted to transition from a field position to follow down the same path, I doubt he wants to be back out in the field and <laughs> rapid chain on his own wells. <laughs> Maybe he does. So I'm trying to think he's probably going down the entrepreneur position. So that's let me address this real quick, even though you're talking about Jake. So Dean, the way to do this is to find a problem in the industry that's not being solved. Now, and listen to me very carefully about this. This is where a lot of people get it wrong. Then go find out if people are willing to pay to solve the problem. So our industry is full of problems that you can solve, but a lot of them nobody wants to fix. And so you'd be wasting your time. And then I would take that once you found the problem, you've identified it. And then I would just go out and, and talk to some people that aren't friends of yours because your friends like you and they won't tell you the truth, right? Because they don't want to hurt your feeling. They don't do it intentionally. So you're better off talking to people that you don't know and say, look, here's a problem. If I can fix this, would you pay for it? And if they go, yeah, quantify it. Say how much and keep track of that. And then take that and get some letters of intent. Now, a letter of intent is not legally binding whatsoever. But if you can get four or five companies to shoot you an email saying, yes, Dean, if you solve this problem, I will write you a check for $200,000. You're now on to something. And you take that and you don't quit your day job, but you stand up your own company built around that. And now you, you're you in that startup world, right? You have a clear path. You have a problem you can solve. You have companies that say they will pay you. After that, that's when you really probably should ping Jake and Colin because then you're looking at if you need to raise funding and all that. And I don't know much of anything about that. Those two are the experts around that. So I don't know if that helps you, Dean. I do, Jake, think it's funny all the devil dogs were getting it reached out on the show. <laughs> I'm curious, if, in, in our audience, I would love to hear back from you. How many of y'all served in the Marine Corps? I would love to know what that number is. But hopefully, Dean, that helps you. And so, Jake, I'm going to kind of hand this back to you. If we're correct in thinking that Dean wants to go down the entrepreneur route in oil and gas, any other helpful information you can give him? Yeah. It's kind of hard when it comes to like giving advice about if you if you have a great idea, then I think we can. that's a good starting point. If you don't have an idea, I'm just kind of one of those people that either just naturally had the ideas or I just naturally see the opportunities. 
you know, I say that I'm an entrepreneur, but I think more so I'm, I'm an opportunist. Um, and so I find opportunities. And like Mark said, one of the things I learned a long time ago was that you always go and validate whatever it is. Go to the market, go to the buyers and, and understand whether this is something that they're actually willing to, to pay to solve and how much will they actually pay for that. We did this with, uh, with my first company, GDSware. We've done this with Wellhub. For example, when we first, even though that I had already been in this, in this sector for uh, about three years at that point, we went back to the market, sat down with 25 ENPs and said, hey, we're thinking about solving this problem. Kind of talk us through it. What, you know, what are your pain points? And then we were able to identify exactly that we were on the same path. We were able to validate that. But at the same time, we were able to dictate, obviously this is for a software product. We were able to dictate what our development schedule was going to be and prioritize that so that we can deliver value from day one. And then right now we're in a little bit of a, I wouldn't really call it a pivot, but we're changing some of the scope of what we're doing based on the market. Uh, and so once again, we're going back to the market and doing that again. And this is an exercise that we'll continue to do as long as we're a company, just to make sure that we are constantly listening to the market, listening to the customers. Getting started is, uh, it's kind of hard for some people to make that leap from, from a comfortable job to, Hey, I've got an idea and I want to run with it. The best thing I can say is, you know, a lot of people get started just bootstrapping, you know, working nights and weekends for a few years on end and, and, and really just, you know, having passion for their idea or their, their product or whatever it may be. I'll tell you right now that entrepreneurship is not easy. Um, and so you have to be willing to wake up in the morning and essentially just get punched in the face by life day in and day out for years on end. There's, uh, there's no overnight success it's going to be a hundred times harder than you imagine it'll be. And, but if the, it still sounds like fun to you, we can have, we can have a more in depth conversation. Just reach out to me directly. Uh, I think my information's in the show notes as well, or just ping me on LinkedIn and we can kind of figure out exactly where you're at. And this goes for anybody else, anybody else who's listening, who's, who's looking to, to, you know, make the leap into entrepreneurship, you know, ping me, let me, let me know what you got going. And, uh, I'm sure we can kind of guide you in some direction. Yeah, audience, if you don't know this, Jake and Colin are the guys for all the guys not to do a shirt on the planet. They are the guys. So yeah, reach out to them. And where we, uh, oh, let's not do the red count yet. So big shout out to Red Wing for being a sponsor of the show. Without them, this show would not be possible. Uh, we give away these really cool offshore bags, which people love. I actually had somebody come up to me, Jake, at our last happy hour and said his client won the offshore bag. And was so happy that he was actually coming to see me that he wanted to have him personally tell me thank you for the bag, which I think is cool. But Jake and I have nothing to do with giving away these bags. It's it's totally random, but you have to register. It's really simple. Go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. So it's and funny. Now- it's funny you mentioned that because I actually, so, you know, Red Wing gave us the two bags. We had the small bag and then we had the actual large offshore bag with the wheels and all that kind of stuff. And so. So our trip to Switzerland was the first time that I'd actually put it to use. I was like, I need a big bag and all the suitcases that I had just weren't big enough. And so I just loaded it up with clothes and I still had so much space in there. Yeah. And it has so many pockets and it has wheels on it. And it was just funny because me and Colin are just traveling around Switzerland with these gigantic offshore bags and people are just yeah, looking so at us like, what are these guys doing? <laughs> yeah. Audience. So Jake, let me correct you real quick. So the offshore bag isn't the one with wheels on it. Okay. The offshore yeah, bag is the... Yeah, the small one, one made to fit in a helicopter luggage slot. So, audience, if you get one, it's not going to have wheels on it like Jake's has. That's that's a body bag. I mean, <laughs> you could literally put a body. I have one, too. It's huge. It's a great bag, but we're giving away the actual offshore bags. So, Jake, what's the rig count doing? We are sitting at 1,158, so we were up 1%. 
Oh, that's awesome. That's a good, solid number. Uh, speaking of good, solid numbers, our happy hours have blown up. We sell out every month. Uh, we're getting ready to release the next one, which this month will actually be Thursday because we'll be somewhere else that Tuesday. Typically, it's the last Tuesday of the month. This one's going to be Thursday, September 27th. We'll have a link in the show notes. Sign up early. I don't know about you, Jake, but the day of the happy hour, all of a sudden, a bunch of people became my friend and said, hey, buddy, Mark, can you get me in? Because I forgot to sign up. And I have to tell you, no, you're not getting in unless you sign up. And part of the money goes to charity. So so you're doing a good thing. But the, the happy hours are great. We have all these other events that we're doing, all this stuff we're planning. If you want to find out about this and more, I have a free monthly newsletter. There's a link in the show notes. Sign up and uh, we never spam you. And speaking of stuff like that, the other thing is we need some more questions for our next First Friday Q&A. It, this one was a little slow. So if you can go to allinggasthisweek.com, click on ask a question, submit your question early. That would be a big help to us. And then uh, Jake and I, if you're uh, getting ready to start planning your beginning of the year marketing and sales kickoff, instead of bringing in that old tired magician that none of your team thinks is funny, bring me and Jake. Let us do a podcast from your sales and marketing kickoff. Your team will love it. It'll be educational. It'll be fun. And and it, you'll will actually bring the show to your kickoff, which would make you your uh, sales and marketing team super happy and just love to work for you. You know what? You know one one thing that I wanted to do that we haven't we haven't done in a little while, and I think it's just because we've been so busy. Is I really enjoyed the last time that we spoke at uh, at one of the, the universities. And so if you are part of like a specifically an energy MBA program, you know, like maybe Rice University or something like that, and you guys want us to come and speak, I would love it. I love connecting with uh, with some of these bright minds. Yeah, me too. We love going to universities. And, and when they're universities, you actually get a discount because we like to support our, our nation's or our world's young people. And then finally, uh, LinkedIn's getting a little bit better. Thank you, Microsoft. So you haven't joined our LinkedIn group, go to LinkedIn, uh, search for OGGN.com. I mean, OGGN, we pop right up. Go ahead and join the LinkedIn group. So it's been a long show. It's been a good show. Jake, you ready to get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. All right, folks, remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.